Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in on the parables of Jesus. Those are the stories that Jesus told during his earthly ministry. We've said uh, throughout this series that our hope is not just that we would hear some entertaining stories, but that through the stories we would come to better understand and know who Jesus is and what life with him is like in his kingdom. And there may be no other story that Jesus told that is as uh, astounding and as illuminating about who Jesus is and what he offers to us is this story that we come to in Luke chapter 7. And so, if you're willing and able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman that is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Let me start with a question. Would you say that your inner life, your spiritual life, is marked by a sense of overwhelming gratitude, love, um, overflowing love towards God and towards those around you? Would you say that your spiritual life is marked by this kind of overwhelming emotional joy? Or uh, would you say that your inner life is more often uh, a sense of being hard-hearted, a sense of being more a matter of the head and what you think and what you think you believe than it is ever kind of affecting your heart and the way that you love, the way that the people around you feel loved by you. You know, of course, we all uh, would rather our inner life 
be marched by this, marked by this emotional richness, marked by this sense of gratitude and love. And yet so often, uh, if we're honest, our actual experience in the spiritual life is one of being hard-hearted or cold-hearted or feeling like God is a matter of thought uh, more than he is a matter of emotive response. And there's good news and bad news uh, if you want a renewed heart in Christ, if you want a soft heart in God. The good news is that it is incredibly close to all of us, that it's not far from any of us. The bad news is that it lies behind a door that few of us want to open. It lies down a path that's intimidating for very many of us, the path of our own acknowledged brokenness and need. And that's what is at the center of this story. You know, Simon, it should be said, and everyone, if, if you talk to people in his town, everyone would have agreed that Simon was a great guy. Simon was a pillar of his community. Simon was a successful and upstanding citizen. Simon was religiously successful. He would have been, to put it in contemporary terms, he would have been an elder in his local church. He would have been a pillar of his community. He would have been the guy that was asked to serve on the boards of nonprofit organizations. He was a thoughtful man. He was somebody who had an, a reputation of being conversant with the great ideas of his time. In fact, it wasn't uncommon when a great teacher would come to town that Simon would have them into his home. And there in his home, an open house would happen where he would exchange ideas with this thinker, with this preacher, where other people, other wise and respectable and successful men would gather around and exchange ideas and learn. So here was a man who was smart, he was successful, he was religious, he was moral. And here he is in the scene that we come to today, holding court in his home. A young and somewhat controversial preacher has come to town. And Simon invites this man Jesus into his home. Yes, to, to host a party, but more than that, to host an exchange of ideas. So he has Jesus there as the guest of honor. He would have had a few other assembled guests, good friends that he invited to be a part of the discussion. And then this overflowing crowd of other people, other good, successful, serious, morally earnest people come to gather and to learn and to discuss. And then in the midst of this room, with everyone on rapt attention listening to the teacher, you would have heard the unmistakable click-clack of a woman in heels too high, struggling to walk, coming up, trying to break into the crowd, trying first click-clacking her way over to the left, unable to break through, finally worming her way through, as this audience of good and respectable men turn and look. Some would have recoiled in disgust at the overwhelming smell of her perfume. Others, maybe good, respectable men, pretended not to know her, pretended not to recognize her. But if you knew her or not, it would have been un undeniable what she did for a living, how she earned her money. Luke gives us only the, the summary that she was a woman of the city. This was a prostitute. And she comes walking in, working her way to the teacher's feet. And there, when she finally gets in front, with everybody looking at her going, how is she going to embarrass herself more now? She begins to cry. 
not cute, ladylike sniffles, she starts bawling. She starts overwhelmingly weeping at Jesus' feet, and then she takes down her hair, lets it fall around her shoulders, and she falls at Jesus' feet, making more of a scene, transgressing more of the appropriate norms of the society, trying to, to kneel down in a skirt too short without embarrassing herself further. She falls at Jesus' feet, starts weeping and wetting his feet with her tears, expressing this incredible display of love and gratitude and emotion towards Jesus. Two people on absolute opposite poles of their society. One, a respected leader, a pillar of his community. The other, a woman who finds herself on the outside, an outcast, a woman who, who knew only shame in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, one of you gets it. One of you is not far from the kingdom. One of you is right where you should be. And the other one's soul is in mortal danger. The other one's soul is cold and far from life in Jesus' kingdom. What kind of teacher is this? What kind of religion is this? Where it's the ashamed prostitute that's lifted up as the example for the hearers to follow. Be more like this woman and the successful, respectable, intelligent man is told your soul is in very, very deep danger. In this story, maybe more than I think anywhere else in the Gospels, we see the absolutely upside-down nature of the message of Jesus. The way that he turns our conventional expectations of religion completely upside down. Every one of us, uh, every culture in the world, is following some version of the plan that good and successful people get their way to God. And the people who make enough bad decisions, the people who don't uh, honor God with their lives, get left out. We're all, whatever the name of the religion, all of us, most of the religions offer a way to improve ourselves towards God, cleaning ourselves up for his approval. And yet Jesus right here says, no, no. The good, respectable man finds himself on the outside of a circle he's been on the inside of his whole life. And this woman finds herself embraced. I think the key to understanding the story is understanding what's similar and what's different between Simon and this woman. What are their similarities and what are their differences? Well, the point of Jesus' story that he tells of these two debtors, the point of the story is that these two people have far more in common than Simon would ever admit. That they have far more in common than they have that's different. Right, so Jesus begins the story. I love that there's this little detail. It says that when the Pharisee, Simon, who'd invited him, saw this, he thought to himself, if Jesus knew who this woman is, what kind of woman she is, he would never let him touch her, or never let her touch him. And then Jesus, it says, looking at Simon, answers him. So here's Simon having an internal dialogue, and Jesus says, hey, Simon, I've got something to tell you. If you've learned anything through our first several of Jesus' parables, you know that when Jesus says, hey, I've got something to tell you, you know that you've gone from being the, the cold and distant examiner of Jesus to being the one who in a moment is being undressed and examined by Jesus. And then Jesus tells this story. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. 
One owed him 500 denarii and the other 150. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. So here's the story. These two debts are both astronomical. A denarii, we think, is about one day's wage in the ancient world. So one person owed the man more than one year of their wages, another over one month of their wages, and neither one could pay. Both of the debtors find themselves in the exact same situation, which is being bankrupt, being unable to pay the debt they owe to the money lender. Now, you have to understand, in the ancient world, this would have meant ruin. This would have meant that both of them were looking at likely having to sell themselves into indentured servanthood or slavery. Both of them were at the end of their resources and were totally bankrupt. They were both in the same predicament. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a little bit bankrupt or a lot bankrupt, right? It's like if if one man gets bit by a tiny spider that carries a terrible venom and he dies, and the other man gets gruesomely torn apart by a lion, which one's more dead? Well, they're they're both dead. One, One might look uglier, but they've both, they both have the same problem, the same predicament. And so both of the debtors in the story find themselves with a debt they can't pay. This is Jesus' way of saying that both Simon and the woman are in the same fundamental position before God. They both have a debt that they cannot pay before God. That sin makes debtors out of all of us before God. Now, some of us are good at hiding it. Some of us are outwardly successful. Some of us can, uh, can dress it up and look good most of the time. Others of us, it becomes to a point where it's not manageable, where we can't keep our addictions and our sins hidden any longer. And we, we become a spectacle. We become embarrassed. We become ashamed. But for all of us, for every human being that's ever lived, sin creates a debt before God that we, that we can't pay that we owe God by virtue of who he is and what he's given us. Every one of us owes God perfect and perpetual obedience, perfect loving worship, perfect, a perfect, perfectly humble heart orientation towards him and service towards our neighbors. And none of us have ever paid that debt. None of us have ever managed to live that way. Tim Keller, a preacher in New York, says it this way years ago. He says, you may not be Ivan the Terrible, but it's not for a lack of talent. Right? You may not not be one of history's great terrorists and despots, but it's not because you don't have it in you. That if circumstances didn't align and you found yourself with that kind of power, that you wouldn't be capable of exactly the same thing. And so uh, the first thing to notice about these two people is that they are fundamentally the same in their debt before God. But what's the difference between these two people? The difference fundamentally is basically that the woman knows it and Simon's in denial. That Simon thinks of himself as fundamentally fine. That he's a good man. That he's a man who has it together. And that he's more or less fine in and of himself. Now he approaches Jesus... He's interested in Jesus. He's interested in Jesus' ideas. He's interested in learning from Jesus. But he approaches Jesus as somebody who's in a position to evaluate his ideas, to make his way through them, and to think whether or not he needs them or doesn't need them, 
Maybe even judging Jesus, thinking, well, some of Jesus' ideas are good, some of them are bad. But fundamentally, he believed that he liked Jesus, he was interested in Jesus, but he didn't believe that he needed Jesus. He didn't believe that Jesus offered him something that if he didn't have it, that his life was ruined. So he thought of himself as basically fine. And then along comes this woman who thinks of herself in completely different terms. Not as basically fine, but as basically lost and now found in Christ. Is someone who's lost, but now been found by Jesus and in Jesus. You know, we don't know a lot about this woman outside of this encounter. We don't know how else she had encountered Jesus. It's clear from the way that she's responding to him that she had some knowledge of who he was and what he offered to women like her. You know, already by this time, Jesus had begun to bear the label friend of sinners, that he was someone that instead of hanging out with men like Simon, good and successful men, chose instead to spend his time with women like this one, with prostitutes, with men who were tax collectors who made their money through extortion that Jesus seemed to be oriented directly towards making room in his life and in God's kingdom for those who are excluded from society. And so believing that Jesus offered grace and acceptance to women like her, she comes to him. You know, prostitution back then as now is an occupation that leaves women utterly clothed in shame and on the outside of society. You know, nobody uh, ever grows up thinking, you know what I'm going to do when I grow up? Is I'm going to be a prostitute. Uh, No mother ever grows up and says, you know what I want my daughter to do when she grows up? Is become a prostitute. Uh, Very often, then and now, it's the place of last resort uh, for women in desperate situations. For a woman who finds herself uh, out on the street or impoverished, Uh, Many times it becomes the the last way of survival. We know that in today's world, 87% of women who find themselves in the sex trade were sexually abused as children themselves. Surveys of of women in this industry show that that many begin using drugs at age 12 and end up on the streets as young teenagers and then are offered a a way out, uh, some way of, of cobbling a life together for themselves. And so they move into this. And then in doing so, in just surviving, they find themselves further estranged from society, further left out from the circles of of polite uh, society. And that's surely the situation this woman was in. And there was no way back in for a woman like her. Once she had made the choices she had made, once she had gone down the paths she had gone down, there was no way for her to get back in towards community. There was no way for her to have her dignity restored and find herself back within the culture. Honestly, how could there be when the culture was run and led by men like Simon? Right? How could there be a way back in for someone who'd made a mess out of her life? And yet here Jesus is welcoming her back in. And what she shows is this incredible uh, expression of gratitude. Now, we don't know what this woman knew. We don't know if she knew exactly what it cost or what it would cost Jesus to allow her back in to life and community and life with God. 
it's hinted at. The incredible cost is hinted at in the story of the two debtors. You know, debt doesn't just vanish into thin air, right? Debt doesn't just go away. Somebody has to swallow the loss, right? This money lender to say that he forgives the debt of these two people. What he's basically saying is I'm willing to take the loss. I'm willing to take the loss of 500 denarii from one of you, of 50 from another. I'm willing to an immense personal sacrifice of my own well-being and my own welfare. I'm willing to cancel your debt. I'll take the debt. And this is exactly what Jesus does on the cross, is that he takes the unpayable debt that sinners owe to God, and he takes it on himself. He pays the debt so that we could be brought back in, so that we could be right with God. And it's that experience of having her debt paid so that she could be included that brings her to this overwhelming expression of love towards Jesus. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? The first thing it means is that we have to, each one of us, remember we said that the path to spiritual renewal to joy and to love is there for all of us. But it's behind a door that most of us would rather not open. And the door is the door of basically admitting our own guilt and brokenness. That each one of us is in a position where we have to declare bankruptcy spiritually before God. To admit to God just how desperate our need is. You know, I, I've learned, they don't teach you this in seminary, but there are two types of bankruptcy in American bankruptcy law. There's, there's more than that. But the, the two that most of us will encounter in either corporate life or personal life is chapter 7 and chapter 11. Chapter 11 is the respectable bankruptcy. It's the bankrupt, bankruptcy that GM declared not long ago that says we're basically a good company. If you give us some time and let us balance our debts and maybe shuffle things around a little bit, give us some time, we can get it together and we can pay back our creditors. Chapter 7 is the other one. <laughs> chapter 7 is the one where a company admits, we have made such a mess of things that we're never going to be able to pay our creditors back. You're going to have, we're going to have to liquidate our assets, assets, sell off everything we have to satisfy these debts, and we're basically, we've gone belly up. We've made such a mess of this thing. A lot of us have been trying to declare Chapter 11 bankruptcy before God. God, look, if you give me time... Right, I can get this together. I can figure it out. I can manage this. Sin is a problem that I can get on top of. And God's inviting us to just let him know how bad the books really are. To let him in, let him do a full audit, to let him see our hearts and, and finally go, you know what, God, I'm not going to get this under control. Sin is not a small problem that given enough time, I'm going to manage my way out of. I've made such a mess of my life that apart from your grace, I'm... I'm without hope. So we have to admit our bankruptcy before God. And when we do so, when we lay down, when we admit our brokenness, we discover that God's grace is bigger than we ever imagined it could be. You know, uh, the great hymn writer, uh, John Newton, put it this way. Although my memory is fading, this is as an old man, I remember two things very clearly. One, I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. If you're only a little sinner, 
If you're only a sinner who just has a tiny little problem with some behavior some of the time, then Jesus will only ever be a small savior. Someone who helps you, someone who gives you some tips and tricks to being a better person. But when you admit that you're a great sinner, then Jesus becomes a great savior to you. You become more amazed by his glory, more amazed by his grace, more amazed by the depth of his forgiveness. You become more like this woman. You know, Paul says, the Apostle Paul, that this is a truth worthy of great acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the good news. The bad news is that he only came for sinners. He only came for sinners. If you're not willing to take your place with the rest of humanity as a sinner, then Jesus has very little to offer you. Jesus came for sinners. You know, when this woman uh, comes and breaks her flask of ointment, what she's doing is saying, all I bring to Jesus is my sin. The, the perfume of a woman in her profession was like the hammer of a carpenter. It was, it was the most indispensable tool of her trade. And she comes to Jesus' feet and she breaks it open, just leaves it there. This is an act of repentance. This is, an act, this is her saying, Jesus, you are better than my old life. You're better uh, than my old way of doing things. This is the pornography addict coming and taking his computer and throwing it down at Jesus' feet so it shatters. This is the, the person wrapped and wrapped around the consumeristic idolatry that they've got to look good at all times and have the latest and greatest, bringing all of her finest clothes before Jesus' feet and lighting them on fire. Uh, this is the workaholic bringing his cell phone or his day timer and throwing it at Jesus' feet and saying, you can have it. It's laying down sin, laying down the old way of life and saying Jesus is better. And that's the magic of the gospel. That's what makes the gospel become alive to our own hearts. It's, what's, what's, it's what makes the gospel come alive in a community. It's what makes the church contagious. If we want to know renewal, either in our personal lives or in our church, if we want to see our church uh, reach out effectively to our neighbors, what it takes is slowly and over time silencing Simon's voice. The voice of the one that says, you know, if Jesus knew just how broken we really are, he would never want anything to do with us. It takes silencing Simon's voice. You know, I, at this point in the sermon, I often think to myself, or I often ask, and I've heard it asked, who are you more like? Are you more like Simon or the woman? And I think that's a, you know, that can be a valid question for us. But as I was meditating on this passage, you know what I, I just I realized so clearly? was that I am, th this picture is going on in my soul every day, every minute of every day. There's a part of me that wants so desperately to be like this woman, to just lose myself and let go, receiving the incredible grace of Jesus, admitting what a mess I am, receiving his goodness, receiving his grace. And then there's this other voice on my shoulder, the inner critic, the voice of Simon, that says, don't do it. Pull yourself together, man. If Jesus really knew what kind of man you are, the depth of, of the sin of your heart, your anger, your vanity, your lust, all of that, he'd want nothing to do with you. Daily we're in this drama between shame and grace. 
And the voice of Jesus invites us to come out of shame and into grace, to let go of it. John Stott, a great Christian theologian and pastor, tells the story of being invited to preach at this cathedral, the first cathedral in Norway. And he's there in this 12th century cathedral, beautiful building, at the personal invitation of the Bishop of Norway. And Stott preaches through an interpreter. And then after he preaches, he prays and he sits down and the bishop gets up to lead his way through the rest of the service. And in the back of the cathedral, this woman starts yelling, screaming in Norwegian, that guttural tongue, starts screaming in the back of this beautiful building. And she starts walking up out of, out of the back and then slowly down the aisle, yelling in Norwegian, that Stott learns through an interpreter what she's yelling. She's yelling, I am a sinner. I am a prostitute. I have an illegitimate child. You say this is a place of grace. Is there grace for me here? Is there grace for me here? And this raving, yelling woman walks down the aisle, walks up the steps past the altar. She falls at the bishop's feet in all of his regalia, all of his fancy bishop clothes. And the bishop wraps his arms around her and embraces her. And they both weep. Is there grace for me here? It's the question that the whole world's asking about the church. Is there grace for me here too? Can I find mercy here? If we as a church, this is the very reason we started a church, To be a church where men like Simon and women like this one can find fellowship at the foot of the cross, can realize that here we're all welcomed, the hard-hearted Pharisee and the prostitute, that we're all welcomed around this table, that we're all invited, that if there's not hope for the most ashamed one of us, the most sinful one of us, then literally we're all damned. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, I confess that I don't, there's a huge part of me that doesn't want this to be true. To believe that, that real life and real freedom is found only through going the way of the cross and admitting uh, the mess that I've made of my life, admitting what I'd prefer to keep hidden in the dark corners of my heart. Lord, give us the gift of brokenness. Give us the gift of true repentance. Give us the gift of honesty. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you welcome honest sinners into your embrace. That when we lay down our lives, lay down our sin before your feet, that there we find mercy and joy and grace. Lord, I pray that this church and each one of our individual lives would be marked by the awareness that we are great sinners in need of a great Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.